coming up. These women wanted wanted him to see them. They wanted him to look at them so that they could have their moment. And absolutely they did. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. Throughout much of the 1970s and 1980s, one man terrorized the state of California. I remember I looked out the window. I looked out and there was a man um, dressed in black. I didn't hear him come in. I didn't hear anything. And all of a sudden, there was someone standing in my door. Also known as the Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, and the original Night Stalker, the Golden State Killer believed to be responsible for at least 13 murders, over 50 rapes, and more than 100 burglaries, remained on the loose for decades. But three years ago, this past weekend, he was finally tracked down to a quiet neighborhood in Sacramento County, California. In our national headlines this morning, the man police believe may be one of the country's most notorious serial killers has been arrested in California. Madison Wade joins us from California, where she's a reporter and anchor with ABC10 in Sacramento. Madison, it's three years ago this past weekend that one of the most prolific serial rapists and murderers in U.S. history, the Golden State Killer, was finally arrested in Sacramento County. I can only imagine being a reporter in Sacramento. That had to be an eventful day for you. What was it like to cover something like that? Eventful, absolutely. Uh, It was unprecedented the way he was caught. Uh, The fact that he was willy-nilly just living in the same community where he terrorized women and families for years, where he killed a couple, where he raped nine women. Um, It was shocking just seeing his face, seeing more about him, the way it was released. There were murmurs on Reddit that he was caught. Someone was caught. They identified someone with a Golden State Killer, East Dairy Rapist. And then sure enough, that day, they announced the Sacramento County District Attorney and all the investigators from his case over the years uh, stood up there and had a photo of him a mugshot after they arrested him by going to his house and he was working on his car. They were observing him for weeks and months. Uh, they knew it was him for quite some time after they got the DNA match. And it was just really shocking for everyone in this community, all of us as reporters. Uh, there was quite the possibility we thought that he was no longer alive or maybe this person would never be caught. And to have that happen the way it did, and who he is as a person, his background was truly shocking. I remember when this happened, looking at some of the coverage, and I think the thing that stood out to me the most was that this wasn't somebody who had removed himself from society or anything like that. He was somebody who was just living in Sacramento all this time. Mm -hmm. He was. He was living in a very quiet community. Um, He was a neighbor to a bunch of people. He worked at a Save Mart in the distribution center, uh, kind of as like an organizer type manager person. Um, So he was employed. He had a motorcycle. He would, investigators who were casing him and following him said that he would, you know, jump on his motorcycle and act like the laws did not abide, that he didn't have to abide by the laws. Um, He 
I mean, if he was living in Sacramento, he was going to the grocery store. He was going to the bank. He was going to maybe the mall where women and victims, survivors of him would also be going. It is quite possible that he was in line behind a woman that he raped in the 70s at the grocery store, at the bank, or at the mall. He was living in the same community that he terrorized for decades. And that alone is just so brazen to know. He had three daughters. He was married. He was living his normal life. But he is and has now since confessed and been convicted as the Golden State Killer and East Area Rapist. It is just a wild situation. Can you speak a little bit about what this arrest and ultimately his conviction, what it's meant to folks in California where this one man, to use the word you used, terrorized so many people for such a long time? I think what stood out to me the most is talking to the survivors, the women who were able to all individually go up there and face him. Joe, on October 28th, 1978, you terrorized me and my family. Well, I am here. I am free to leave this courtroom and lead the life I choose. They told me, and what's something I will never forget, is they said that they are not victims here. They are survivors. Well, I survived. And I survived. According to Wikipedia, I'm victim number 43. But I prefer to think of myself as Gladys Reader, survivor number 43. They are so strong, and they all are best friends with each other. That is such a beautiful thing. To be terrorized by this man and to now have an entire community and and support group behind you of, of women who all felt the same way, and even some men. I mean, he terrorized a couple in Stockton, held up uh, the husband while he did what he did to the wife, you know? And I was I got the chance to talk to that couple, and they are so strong. Their love for each other is unwavering. And to go through, through trauma like that, it was just really remarkable to talk to these women and just to hear what this meant for them. It was such a moment of vindic- vindiction and a moment that they've been waiting for forever. And to be honest, they never thought it was going to happen. And it did. I'll be speaking a little bit more about how investigators actually tracked this man down with one of your colleagues, Mike Duffy, tomorrow. But on today's episode, I want to step back and walk through the timeline of his crimes. And let's actually start back before anyone knew this person as the Golden State Killer or any of the other monikers he's gone by, what do we know about his early life before he began committing crimes? So he was born in New York. Uh, His father was in the Navy and traveled all over the place. So he grew up following his father to military bases in Germany, across the United States. Uh, By junior high school, they landed in Rancho Cordova in the Sacramento area. Uh, his, His past was rootless almost, you know, not really having a home uh, growing up. And there are rumors um, and alleged trauma and abuse from his parents to him. His mom died uh, before his father did. There's some interesting rumors about their family dynamic, but really uh, it's like digging into the archives, right, of trying to figure out why he could have been this person Um, and what we know now, but he did go to the Navy himself. He followed in his father's footsteps. He did serve in the Vietnam War. 
uh, when he came back, he had a very high interest in criminal justice. So that's what he went to go study. And he actually studied at Sacramento State University, which is actually where he was convicted of all these crimes. So a little Mm. bit of an ironic situation there. Um, that's where they held his hearing and his sentencing. So that was pretty interesting. Uh, but he, you know, went there for criminal justice. Um, that is where he met this woman named Bonnie, who he ended up proposing to. He fell in love very quickly with her. It was a fast relationship. And I mean that in all the ways. Uh, their sexual relationship was incredibly disturbing. She even told me that herself. Uh, their relationship in general was very terrifying. There was a sense of fear always when she was around him. She ended up getting engaged to him out of fear. And then he asked her to cheat on a test for him. They were in school together. And that was her final straw. She said, I'm done. I can't, I can't be engaged to you or married to you. So they called off their engagement. And not too long after that, he ended up marrying a different woman his now estranged wife. But investigators and victims, well, survivors, have heard from D'Angelo when he was doing those crimes against them. He would often say the word and the name Bonnie. I, I hate you, Bonnie. Bonnie, you're the worst. Those kinds of things. And, and no one really understood who's Bonnie, right? Like, mm-hmm. why is he saying that? Well, Now we know he was engaged to a woman named Bonnie. She has since now come out and shared her story, and I got the chance to talk to her. I was only 18 when we began dating, and 19 when when I ended it. But as, as I continued with him and began to realize that Basically, I was in an abusive relationship, and he was he was pushing me to fear and discomfort over and over again, and that wasn't how I wanted my future to be. I mean, she is so strong, but she also is so lucky that he didn't kill her or come back to terrorize her. I mean, it's my... It's, possible, probable, that he knew where she was at all times. I have heard implications from some of the investigators that he has always stalked me, that he always knew where I lived, where I worked. On the other hand, I never even Googled his name. I was done with him. I didn't care where he lived or where he worked. I was just moving on with my life. This is a guy that was a police officer for the Exeter Police Department. He then was a police officer for the Auburn Police Department. It's believed that during his time as uh, an Auburn police officer, that's when he was committing the rapes in the Sacramento area. It's quite possible he was also on duty while committing these rapes. Wow. Tell me a little bit about his early criminal career then, if we can call it that. Absolutely. So less than a year after Bonnie broke up with D'Angelo, police in Rancho Cordova, which is where he lived, we now know that, the eastern area where he grew up, they started to get reports of an unusual cat burglar, is how they would describe it. This this man or person was seen running around neighborhoods at night, uh, often was just in disarray, sometimes didn't even have his pants on, uh, would, would steal um, family pets, and also would kill family dogs. Just very bizarre crimes, right? It was uh, randomly breaking in and touching a woman's face while she was asleep, Um, but no no rapes. So it was just 
what the heck is going on here? So that happened. Then the Visalia Ransacker became a thing. And that is really the name that comes from his time in Visalia and also his time as an Exeter police officer. Exeter is close to Visalia in proximity. And the ransacker was someone who would break into homes and steal things and ransack, you know, these homes. And uh, when the Visalia ransacker disappeared in late 1975, but the East Area Rapist started his terror in Rancho Cordova in mid-1976, detectives in the Exeter and Visalia area were getting some very interesting similarities between the two, uh, between the East Area Rapist cases and also the Visalia ransacker cases. And uh, that is really, you know, where they started to wonder if there was a connection also, the first known murder happened in 1975 during those Visalia Ransacker days. Uh, the Tulare County District Attorney later charged D'Angelo with the 1975 homicide of Claude Snelling. He was shot and killed in his home by the Visalia Ransacker as he attempted to kidnap Snelling's teenager daughter. And that was, that was his first killing. Uh, it's quite possible he panicked. And Snelling put up a fight, and that's why he killed him. But that is what we know as the first murder. There were two murders that also happened in Sacramento not far after that. So that happened in 1975. 1976, he then moves back to Sacramento. The crimes escalate. And that's where East Area Rapist came in. Um, there were town halls being held in the Sacramento County area after some of the rapes. It's quite possible D'Angelo was even in that room listening to the investigators talking about it. Um, the real hard thing is investigators have no clue his track. How did he get away so quickly? How was he able to case these women? Why did he pick these women? He definitely had an area where he targeted. And that area is the Rancho Cordova, uh, Fair Oaks area. So. It's quite possible some of the uh, river trails over there were helpful to him in terms of getting out of the area quickly. He was very agile, jumping over fences, um, always had a mask on, never was able to be identified. He lowered his voice. He also made his voice high-pitched. He really was brazen and unapologetic when it came to how he raped and, and who he raped. And again, 13 murder counts in total is what he's facing and 13 rape-related charges. But investigators know he, he raped around 45 people, possibly even more. So during the late 70s, then this time where he'd moved to Sacramento and the East Area Rapist was active... How frequently are these attacks taking place? So in the Sacramento area, Sacramento County, uh, he had nine counts against him of kidnapping to commit robbery. They couldn't charge him with rapes because of statute of limitations, unfortunately. Uh, but that means he raped nine women uh, using a gun and a knife between September 4th, 1976 and October 21st, 1977. That is a little bit more than a year. Uh, he was very quick. He did it all at nighttime. None were during the day. Most often when women were home sleeping, even 
even, this is so disgusting and disturbing, but even teenagers, his youngest rape victim, I believe is 12 or 13 years old at the time. Horrible. Um, and, and these victims were later identified as Jane Doe's number one through nine. And then his terror continued and it went south. It went to Santa Barbara County. It went to Ventura County. It went to Orange County. He really covered a lot of territory when it comes to the crimes he committed. Right. And there are all these other strange details about these attacks that still don't make a lot of sense, even knowing what we know now, where he would spend a lot of time in the victim's homes. Is that right? Yeah, he would. Yeah, he... It's it's crazy, honestly, Reed. The stuff that has since come out from the survivors of what he really did to them, we all knew it was bad. We knew it was bad, but we didn't know how terrible and torturous and tormenting of a person he was until the survivors stood up there and were able to tell their stories. But you were so right. He put plates um, on the the husband. And if those plates made any sort of noise, then he said he would go kill the husband. He would tie up women and then he would go outside and then he would come back inside and then he would rape them. And then he would go back outside, come back inside, then rape them. He took his time. Only a couple of his crimes were rushed. And those are the ones where he actually almost got caught or actually almost got injured or killed. So most often he was setting up himself for success in a way because he thought he was able to use all the time in the world to do whatever crimes he wanted to do. There are stories where he would go into the kitchen and eat food that belonged to the survivors or the victims at the time. He would then steal things like jewelry. He would steal random items from them, uh, cufflinks even. And then he would slip away in the night. He would make sure they did not know who he was. But of course, once more women started to report this, once more crimes started to happen, that's when the task force was assigned. And I'm not exactly sure what caused him to leave the Sacramento County area and go south, but it's quite possible he was close to getting caught or he thought he was. And at the time, you know, a lot of investigators didn't share information. And so he was able to go to Southern California and continue to kill and rape people. The East Area Rapist was active from about 1976 to 1979. And then it's in 1979 that, as you mentioned, D'Angelo moves to Southern California, where his crimes, it seems like, escalate again. Absolutely. His crimes escalated quite a lot. More rapes, and now he's murdering people. And according to investigators I talked to, it just got to a point they believe that he was getting so much pleasure from this, he just wanted to go further. And unfortunately, so many people were his victims. 13 murder, 13 murders, 13 innocent people who were at home uh, just being a young couple and then have the East Area Rapist and Golden State Killer kill them and rape them. And each one was different. And that's something that stood out to me is it's almost like he didn't have a plan. But then he also did. One of the murders I will never forget hearing more about from the daughter of Lyman Smith, a lawyer at the time. He was married to Charlene. They were living in their Ventura County home. They were sleeping when he decided to come in. 
he brutally murdered them with a log. And that is the murder weapon. Uh, the log came from the side of the house. And the details she, she shared with me are horrible and horrific and don't even seem real. And this is the reality. This is how they died. And DNA actually was taken from the body of Charlene after she was raped. It was DNA from D'Angelo, and that was stored. That DNA is what caught him. Mm. That is the catalyst of this case, that murder, because he, they were able to get enough DNA from her body and submitted it. And so at the same time, you know, the, the daughter of Lyman, she is horrified by what happened to them, but she is also so grateful that something from their case is what solidified his arrest and now his conviction and now his rest of his life in prison for being one of the most notorious serial killers in the country. During the late 70s and early 80s then, do investigators realize that this serial killer in Southern California is the same person as the East Area Rapist? Or is that something that would happen down the road when when we're able to, to now connect all those dots? So, of course, yeah, down the road, that's more when it happened. But in 2001, Paul Holes was able to link the Northern California East Area Rapist to the original Night Stalker cases, which were homicides in Southern California. So that that link did happen in 2001. But then the case goes cold. Nothing happens. And now in 2018, we have an arrest. So it really was years in the making of this and a bunch of investigators just realizing we need to go back into this case. And, you know, the FBI got involved, all the tasks for task forces from all the DA's office. Um, but yeah, in 2001 is really when actually it was linked, but no one knew who he was. And there was DNA, but what do you do with the DNA? He didn't, he didn't exist in the CODIS system. He didn't exist in the national database at all. So they had they couldn't even get a hit. Right. And during all this time when the East Area Rapist is active, when the original Night Stalker is active, he's not only managing to evade capture, but as you mentioned, his actions are getting seemingly more and more brazen to the point that he was even contacting victims after the fact. Tell me about that. Several survivors we talked to have phone recordings and detectives have them too of D'Angelo calling them on their house phone back after all these crimes happened, terrorizing them. Sometimes he would call and hang up. Sometimes he would call and all you would hear was breathing, someone just breathing heavily into the phone. Sometimes he would call and say, I'm going to kill you. And of course, these women would report that right away. But it was all through the home phone. There was no way to link any of this. But that's when I said that he most likely knew where his survivors or victims were at all times. It's quite possible he did. What then happens when this string of murders just stops prior to his arrest? What did we know about that? That is a big question with no clear answer. And investigators would love to know if his, his, if his crimes continued in other ways but one theory that is quite possible and one that investigators have pointed to without being able to really truly connect it is he became a dad. Uh, according to the birth records of his three daughters, they were born 
sometime around the late 70s and early 80s. And it's quite possible his priorities, his responsibilities changed as a father. And that's really one theory investigators have pointed to, but no one truly knows. That is a big question everyone would like to know, is if he, you know, continued in some sort of way with different crimes. But as you know, with serial killers, that urge and that pleasure, that that predator-prey situation never goes away, truly. And to bring this full circle, that is one of the reasons I think it was so haunting for us to find out that he was still alive in 2018 and that he had been in the community all those years. Everyone was shocked by that. Uh, most of the survivors were even more shocked. Again, just the the sheer fact that he was keeping tabs on them or that they may have been at the same red light, stopped at a intersection at one point, or the fact that they were on the, uh, the same plane leaving Sacramento International Airport. I mean, there are so many instances where they could have brushed shoulders. And that alone is terrifying, according to all the survivors I talked to. Uh, but they were so relieved and they felt so strong finally seeing him caught and and knowing what kind of a coward he truly is. That's what they told me. They were, they knew he could stand and yet he was in a wheelchair the entire time, all of his hearings. And then when he decided to apologize, he had no problem standing right up and saying, I'm sorry. And they said that was an empty sorry. You hear him stand up and say something and it's like, okay, is this going to have any substance to it, whatever? And um, what a letdown. What a total letdown. He totally demonstrated and reinforced what we've always known about how pathetic he is. These women are friends and they have such a sense of camaraderie between all of them. I mean, I have some of these some of these sister survivors that I've known for years. And um, I mean, I remember, you know, my first contact with Michelle Cruz years and years ago, she sent me a message online that says, hey, you and I might have something in common that could help the case. Maybe we should get to know each other. And I said, yeah, sure, why not? And now, I don't know, six, seven years later, we're like, like this, you know, and that, um, I don't know, those, a lot of these, these relationships are, are like that. They're, they're irreplaceable. Many of them have come forward because they want people to know that they are survivors, that they are not the victims here, that they are actually the ones who will continue on in their beautiful lives and have, yes, the trauma and the terrible act of what D'Angelo did to them always on their minds, but they get to live on. And that's why they decided to come forward. Oftentimes, rape victims are absolutely anonymous and understandably so. And these women wanted wanted him to see them. They wanted him to look at them so that they could have their moment. And absolutely they did. They were able to say everything they wanted to say to him for all the years that has been built up in their minds and that, to me, was the most powerful moment in this entire case, was seeing them rise above him and finally face the person who did this to them and, and walk out of there knowing that they are at peace and that they are strong. That was beautiful. As I mentioned, I'll be picking this conversation back up with ABC 10 reporter Mike Duffy tomorrow. Madison Wade with ABC 10, thank you so much for joining us and sharing this story. 
Thank you for having me. Thanks to you for tuning in to another episode of The Daily Crime. As I mentioned on tomorrow's episode, I'll be chatting with another reporter at ABC10 who's covered the Golden State Killer. You're not going to want to miss it, so make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you're listening right now. That'll do it for today. Until tomorrow, for Volt Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. <laughs>